This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we have for you a sermon from Tim Keller. Tim Keller is the chairman and co-founder of Redeemer City to City, which trains pastors for ministry in global cities. He is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City and has authored multiple New York Times bestselling books. This sermon was originally recorded in June 2016 at the PCA General Assembly in Mobile, Alabama. I'm going to read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 5. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom That is, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is God's word. Now, um, it goes without saying, but I'll still say it that uh, to preach the Word of God, to preachers of the Word of God, and to many, many, many lay leaders in one's own communion is both, uh, it's an honor and a great challenge. We've chosen this text because this week's theme is refreshed uh, in and for the cross, in and by the cross. But what we have to do here tonight, I think, is look not only at a great text on the cross, which is what it is, but it's a text on how to preach the cross. It's especially, uh, it's, a, it's especially for us who are in leadership. 
Now, I wish we had the time to actually look at 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way down to 2, verse 5. Uh, there are four paragraphs or four sections. They really do hang together. I just read you the last two. But uh, they are so tightly knit that you're not really going to be able to understand the text that we're about to expound tonight and look at tonight unless you look at what came right before. In chapter 1, verses 10 to 25, Paul actually lays out a vision for the church. It's a vision he lays out because the Corinthian church was failing to realize it. And that vision is, in the first few verses, 1 to 17, a vision for unity in the church. And then in verses uh, 18 to 25, a vision for, I guess what we could call, persuasive confrontation, also known as evangelism. And the reason why he uh, lays these out is because the Corinthian church was failing to realize them. Uh, in verses 10, just to, just to give you a taste of it, in the very first section, he says this. He says, I appeal to you, I appeal to you that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but you be perfectly, un perfectly united in your mind and thought. Now, we know that Paul was every bit as committed to truth as he was to unity. Uh, there's plenty of great places like uh, Galatians chapter 1 where Paul very famously says, if an angel shows up and doesn't agree with the doctrine of justification by faith alone, just throw him out of your general assembly. Uh, no matter how bright he shines. And so, you see, because Paul uh, has such a high view of the importance of truth, when he calls for unity, when he says, I don't want there to be divisions, he can't mean I don't want there to be disagreements. He can't mean that I don't want there to be debates. He can't mean that I don't want there to be confrontations. Remember Paul confronting Peter, you know, one apostle confronting another apostle about uh, doctrinal error? Well, then what does he mean? And actually the answer in this first section is where he says, some from Chloe's household have informed us that there are quarrels among you. And if you take a look at the Greek word used for quarreling and how it's used in other parts of the Pauline literature, you'll realize what he's talking about is this. He's not talking about quarrels are not just disagreements. Quarrels are doctrinal disagreements with the added emotional heat and resentment that comes from not the clash of ideas, but the clash of ego. Uh, the quarrels are more about ego, envy, power, reputation, self-image than they are about truth. And Paul says, that is what I'm forbidding. Uh, some years ago when I was on the faculty with Westminster Seminary with Dick Gaffin, I remember he startled me one day when he said to me, uh, at that point even years ago, Dick Gaffin had been through quite a lot of sustained theological uh, debates and, and controversies over the years. And he said to me, he, he doesn't know of any sustained theological controversies that weren't more about personalities, egos, and envy, and power. They were more about that than they were about the doctrines. That was an amazing thing for somebody like that to say to me. That's exactly what Paul is saying. And one of the things that's so dangerous, of course, is that in our day and time, when Christianity is held in, in uh, lower and lower regard by the population at large, uh, those divisions quarreling, quarreling, which is rampant 
is very discrediting to the gospel. And then in the next section, verses 18 to 25, uh, Paul now turns and, and begins to talk about what I just said. He calls them to having, uh, to doing persuasive confrontation. Uh, verse 20, Paul says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now here he's saying, you need to confront the wisdom of the world and you need to show it to be foolishness. Don't capitulate to it. Don't give in to it. Don't compromise with it. Then, however, he says this. He moves on and says, Jews look for signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Extremely interesting. <laughs> Paul's talking about what Dan Strange, Daniel Strange, who teaches at Oak Hill Theological College in, in London, what Dan Strange calls subversive fulfillment. Because Paul says... When you preach, here's the Jew, here's the Greek, they got two different worldviews. One of them values power over all things. One of them values wisdom over all things. And he says, when you engage with the, the Greek, you say, look at Jesus Christ crucified, and you challenge the Greek's understanding of wisdom. You confront it, you challenge it. And yet you also say, however, this actually is the wisdom you've been looking for. In other words, on the one hand, it's subversive fulfillment. On the one hand, you subvert it and you say, no, you've made an idol out of this wisdom. And yet, in Christ, you will actually find true wisdom. And to the other, uh, uh, to the other culture, it says, you're looking for power. And I confront that with the cross. Uh, I confront your idolatry of power. And yet, in the end, through Christ, you'll find true strength. It's subversive fulfillment. And what he says is, some are persuaded. Now, here's what Paul's trying to say. Capitulation, giving in, compromise, or just denouncing and not persuading. Either way, nobody gets converted, right? If you just denounce, you just, you just denounce. I'm not compromising, but you're not persuading anybody. Or if you just give in and you try to be accepted by the world. Either way, nobody gets converted. But Paul says, I want you to have a persuasion, a persuasive controversy confrontation with the world, a persuasive confrontation with the world, so that uh, some people have experienced subversive fulfillment. Now, the reason why this is so important today, as, as you can tell, is I, would, I, I think it's very, very easy for churches to either move in the denouncing only mode, we're going to be rallying for the faith, nobody's going to convert it, we're just going to denounce, we're not going to do subversive fulfillment. We're not going to connect in such a way that we show the foolishness of the particular worldview. At the same time, we reach out in a persuasive way and say, but this is actually, in Jesus Christ, you're really getting what you're looking for in some ways, but in the wrong places. This, this combination of confrontation and persuasion. People either tend to move toward the confrontation, the denouncing only, or they tend to move toward the, the compromise only. And Paul says neither. And I got to tell you, again, why is this so important today? Uh, why is this so important today? If you just denounce and don't persuade, if you don't engage with our the foolishness of our culture, you're going to find we're going to lose our kids. They're on social media. 
if they just hear you denouncing, go to the youth groups right now and ask them 10 questions about sex, and you'd be shocked. You say, well, they were raised in an evangelical church. You can't just denounce, and you can't capitulate. You've got to do subversive fulfillment. You've got to do persuasive confrontation. Now, Paul says the Corinthians weren't doing that. So what is, what's the key to it? That's what these last two uh, passages, these last two paragraphs, the part that I just read, in a sense, that's how they answer the question. How can we be a church with more unity? How can we be a church with more more evangelistic effectiveness in our current time? And Paul's answer is twofold. Here's what you have to learn how to do. You have to be boasting in the Lord and preaching in the power of the Spirit. Verses 26 to 31, he talks about boasting the Lord. That's first. And that leads to preaching in the power of the Spirit. And that's how you're going to get both the unity and the evangelistic effectiveness. Let me show you. The first section is talking about boasting the Lord. We just read it. And you see the paragraph ends with, so that the the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That's the final result. Before he turns to preaching, He says, I want you to be people who know how to boast in the Lord. What does that mean? Okay, let's talk about that. You'd be surprised how many places Paul talks about boasting. Uh, In fact, in Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, what what most Reformed people consider like the kind of the heart of the best exposition of the gospel, he's talking about boasting constantly. So when the Bible talks about boasting, what's it talking about? Well, Originally, boasting, as the Bible understands it, began as a ritual part of warfare. A ritual part of warfare. So, for example, just look at a concordance and you'll see the first places where the word boast is used in the Bible. uh, Exodus 15, when the Egyptians are going after the Israelites who are fleeing, it says Egypt boasts, boasts, we will pursue them and draw our swords and destroy them. Judges chapter 7, God says to Gideon, he doesn't want the Israelite soldiers to boast, my own strength has saved me. That's the reason why Gideon ends up only using a small number of men. 1 Kings chapter 20, there's a proverb, and the proverb is, one one who's putting on the armor should not boast as one who's taking it off. And, uh, you know, First Samuel 2, even, in Hannah's song, she says, I will boast over mine enemies. So the original idea about boasting, it was something you did to face your enemies. Look, this is a very practical problem. How do you get a group of guys to charge with passion into likely death? I mean, how do you get anybody excited about that? That's a pretty practical problem, okay? How do you get them to charge? Well, there's... There's zillions of examples in literature. You've, you probably realize what they are as I talk to you about it. A ritual boast. That's how you do it. The captain or the king or the general gets up and boasts and says, our arms are strong enough, our swords are sharp enough. Tonight we will be in yonder castle feasting there and their king's head will be on our pike. And everybody goes, Rah! And they charge. See, there's a boast. There's a thunderous affirmation, praise, applause, cheer, huzzah. And then they charge. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. Now, there are, by the way, some very eloquent boasts, but they're still boasts. 
You know, Shakespeare has Henry V, his great speech before the, uh, the Battle of Agincourt, St. Crispin's Day. It's very eloquent. And gentlemen in England now abed will think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks who fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Ah, charge. Now, it's very eloquent, incredibly eloquent, unbelievably eloquent. But basically he's saying, we're going to wipe the floor with them. Ah, and off they go. And that's how the ritual boast works. You boast in your ability. We got the stuff. We can do it. We're strong enough. We're talented enough. You boast in your ability. The response is a roar of approval from the listeners, thunderous approval, and that gets everybody stirred up, and that's how you charge. That's how it's done. But see, the Bible talks about boasting in a lot of other ways because the Bible recognizes that in the end, everybody has to find something to boast in. Everybody does. You know why? Because life is like a battlefield, <laughs> and life is hard, and there's all kinds of opposition out there, the circumstances and people. And like, how do you get up? How do you get up the confidence to every day just wake up and charge? How do you do it? You've got to boast in something. Paul here, when he says, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, he's actually quoting from Jeremiah 9, one of the most famous places in the Bible that talks about it where Jeremiah says, the wise and scholarly man boasts in his wisdom. The uh, politically connected man boasts in his power. The wealthy man boasts in his wealth. You know, one of the things, everybody's got to boast in something. One of the most, to me, one of the great ironies of the self-esteem movement is the self-esteem movement recapitulates ritual battle cries you know, of warfare to the T. You can see it on social media every, every day. Some young person says, I'm beautiful, I'm powerful, I'm being myself, I, I, I'm, I'm stepping out and I'm being myself. And everybody else around goes, yay, you are, you're beautiful, you are powerful, you're wonderful. Happens every day. Teenagers do it all the time. They boast in their authenticity. They boast in their beauty. Usually, I'm being myself. And everybody goes, yay! See? And of course, sometimes people say, I've rejected my Christian faith, my parents' faith, and I'm, this is who I really am over here. And you move from one set of cheerleaders to another set of cheerleaders. But you've got to have somebody who's roaring their approval at your boast, or you just can't face life. And Paul even goes so far, I'll get back to this in a second, at the end of chapter 2 of Romans, in chapter 2.23, he says, He's speaking to the Jews, and he says, you boast in your law, in your law-keeping. And religious people uh, can easily look at their, their biblical knowledge, look at their morality, look at their doctrinal and moral purity, and say, I'm moral, I'm biblical, I'm doctrinally sound. And you're looking for people to say, yes, we are the people who are so sound. In other words, it's a ritual boast. You do it all the time. It's one of the reasons why there's so much saber, saber rattling that very often goes on uh, inside the Christian church where people are always calling other people out on error. And so it's a way of saying, I am holy. I am, I am smart. I am doctrinally sound, you see. And you want other people to go, yeah, you're finally, you, you have the, uh, the, the strength and the, and the, 
the, uh, the courage to get up and say that everybody's got to boast in something and everybody's got to have thunderous affirmation from somebody or you can't charge. You can't face things. So here's the question. What's wrong with that? Paul says absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. You mustn't do that. That's what he's forbidding. He says, let the one who boasts, which of course is everybody, instead, he says, you must boast in the Lord. Now, how do you do that? How do you move from the normal human way of getting power, getting confidence, getting poise, which is you look at yourself and you boast in your ability, say, look, that's great. Then you get a bunch of people who say you are great. And then that gives you the power. And you know what the problem with that is? I guess you, you see that, don't you? First of all, what if you're not doing well this week? <laughs> you know, I'm really smart. I get great grades, except you've got a good, bad grade this week. No boast. Uh-oh, you're in trouble. Or not only that, the crowd is fickle. The other people who are cheering you, sometimes they, they're up on you, but sometimes they're down on you. No wonder we're so insecure. But what Paul says is, you shouldn't boast. You mustn't boast. That's deadly. It's a dead end. You're going to be up and down all the time. So what is the solution? First of all, he says, think about your election. He gives you, there's two things you have to do to change that entire paradigm, to change that entire, the entire spiritual, emotional, and psychological structure of your very heart. There's only, there's, there's two things you got to do. The first thing is you've got to consider your calling. You've got to look at the fact that you are saved by grace, that you're elect only by grace. You know, it's interesting. He starts off by saying, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Now, just one verse before that, remember we talked about the fact where Paul says some Jews and Greeks uh, think the gospel, the cross is foolishness, but some Jews and Greeks think it's the power and wisdom of God. What makes the difference? Paul tells you right there in verse 24, it's the ones who are called find the, the cross to be uh, power and wisdom. It doesn't say, if you if the cross makes sense to you, you're called. No. It says, only if you're called does the cross make sense to you. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Paul spoke to a group of, a group of people, and it says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Now, this is the Reformed doctrine of calling. The Reformed doctrine of calling is there is absolutely nothing in you at all that makes you better than anyone else. Nothing in you at all that makes you better than anyone else. Paul is, ta is taking the doctrine of election, the doctrine that you're called strictly, strictly by God's sovereign grace, not because of anything better in you or anything different in you, and he's using it. Why? Because this is the solution, the beginning of the solution. Why do we quarrel so much? Why are we either denouncers or capitulators and not evangelists? The denouncers are too proud to be effective evangelists because of their self-righteousness. Too self-conscious, not so self-righteous. They're still absorbed with themselves. That's the reason why they're giving in, because they, they want everybody's approval. It's self-centeredness, it's self-consciousness, it's self-righteousness, which is creating the quarreling and making us bad evangelists. And so what Paul does is he gets out the doctrine of election. He gets out the doctrine of sovereign election, and he uses it right on us. He says... Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are influential by human standards. Not many of you were of noble birth. Now, by the way, notice this is an incredibly nuanced statement. 
First of all, it doesn't say not any of you were wise, noble, or rich. It says not many of you. That's important because what Paul is saying, some of you are rich, some of you are smart and brilliant and well-educated, some of you are uh, uh, of noble birth. So God has always worked in those circles, and we must work in those circles too. We must not have reverse snobbery and say, no, we can't work there. But, But Paul says, think about the fact that in general, not many, that means in general, God likes to work with people who the world thinks of as nobodies. In general, God likes to work through people who the world thinks of as nobodies. Why would he do that? Well, he he kind of tells you here. He says, in order to nullify the things that are, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the the strong. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. You could call it the Gideon principle, that God actually likes to call people who the world thinks of as losers to show that even though that you may think they're losers, I'm changing the world through them to show that the power's from me. But I think probably even more, God likes to work through nobodies because Jesus Christ saved us by being a nobody. He came not as an aristocrat. He came not as a philosopher. He came not as a general. He came as a poor man. He came in the manger. Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. You see, God saved us through becoming, the Son of God becomes a nobody and then dies on the cross in weakness. And so generally, in general, what God is saying is this, uh, Paul is saying is this, that God tends to work through people who the world thinks of as nobodies. He tends to work in categories that confound the world's categories. And by the way, even if you are noble and proud, I mean, that's it. even if you're noble, even if you're uh, wealthy, even if you're powerful, even if you're brilliant, you're still spiritually a nobody. Hi, my name is Zachary Groff, and I'm a student at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, where I am preparing for pastoral ministry in the Presbyterian Church in America. My professors are unwaveringly focused on preparing my classmates and me to be preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations. Though most of my classmates are PCA men, many of them come from sister denominations and other churches around the world. I personally have studied alongside of brothers from 15 countries. Our faculty is committed to the doctrinal standards of the Presbyterian Church in America, and my understanding of Christ and His Word has grown by leaps and bounds in my time here. Is someone you know interested in seminary education? Are you interested in the future of confessional Presbyterianism in North America and around the world? If you answered yes to either of these questions, please visit us at gpts.edu or send us an email at info at gpts.edu. You may want to call us at 864-322-2717 or perhaps visit our main campus in Taylor, South Carolina. May the Lord bless you, and may he bless his bride, and particularly that expression of his church we affectionately call the Presbyterian Church in America. I remember when, I remember being on, when I was about 22 years old, being on the, sitting on the floor in R.C. Sproul's living room in Stallstown, Pennsylvania. And I did not like the idea of sovereign election or predestination at all. But in that setting, I wasn't going to say a thing. 
But there was there was a girl, it was a college girl who was sitting there, and she was considerably braver than me. And she says, I think the doctrine of predestination and election is terrible. And R.C. said, okay, let me ask you a question. Uh, is your roommate a Christian? She says, no. Why not? Because, the girl said, I accepted Christ and she didn't. Right, he said. Why did you accept Christ and she didn't? Well, I repented for my sins and she wouldn't. Right. Why did you repent for your sins and she didn't? wouldn't? Well, I guess I was willing to humble myself and, and she didn't want to humble herself. Right. Why did you? And, you know, suddenly everybody realized either you believed in the doctrine of salvation by sheer grace through predestination, sovereign election, or you believe that the difference between you and a non-Christian is just something a little better, a little better. And I realized I was trapped because I realized if I didn't believe in the doctrine of sovereign election, that not only would human pride and not only would human pride and legalism creep into my theology, it would probably creep into my heart. And so, you know, reformed people should be the most free of quarreling and should be the best evangelists in the world. One of the reasons why we're not good evangelists is we're too proud and self-righteous. One of the reasons, another reason is because we're too cowardly. And the doctrine of sovereign election, see what Paul is saying is he's trying to say, this should humble you into the dust. Why would you ever feel better than any other person? So you're a Christian, that person's not a Christian, that person could be a far better person than you. Your Christianity has nothing to do with you being a better person, nothing at all. And on the other hand, who cares what the world thinks about you when you have the love of the king, the sovereign Lord? That should make us the best evangelists in the world. It should make us the most unified people in the world. But we're not. But Paul doesn't stop there. He then turns around and says, not just, oh, look at your sovereign election so that you don't boast. Obviously, because of the sovereign election, that humbles you, humbles you. And that's why he says, that, <laughs> I love it. God chose the lowly things of the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no one would boast in his presence. The, the things that are not, <laughs> meonta, the not things, the nothings. You're a nothing. That's what, that, you are only what you are because of sovereign election of God. That should humble you, humble you. That should get rid of all the pride, all the self-righteousness, self-consciousness, all that stuff. But that's not all there is to it. Because there's, well, what are we supposed to do? You say, oh, uh -huh. we don't boast in our, we, we don't boast in our law keeping. We don't boast in our morality. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the Lord. And, and that's what Paul says. Elsewhere, he puts it like this in Philippians 3, 3. He says, we are to boast in the Christ Jesus and not have any confidence in the flesh. There's nothing in the between. You're either boasting in Jesus Christ or you have confidence in the flesh, something else. You're going to boast in Christ, you're going to boast in something else, one or the other. Okay, so we're supposed to boast in Christ. What does that mean? I've never quite known what it meant until I studied the end of chapter 2 of Romans and put it together with this, verses 31 and 30. In chapter 2, verse 23 of Romans, Paul says, you shouldn't be proud of your law keeping. You shouldn't boast in your law keeping. And then he says, because you're seeking the praise of men, whereas those who are circumcised in the heart by the Holy Spirit 
seek the praise of God. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute. In the ritual boast, you boast in yourself and you get the praise of somebody in the world. And that's how everyone's heart works. That's how our identity works. That's how our self-esteem works. That's how our self-confidence works. But if we're boasting in what Christ has done for us, if we're boasting in our sovereign election, Paul's not saying, well, you don't need applause. You don't need thunderous affirmation. He says, of course you do. You're a human being. You need praise. You need adoration. You need acclamation. And you get it from God. The praise of God, he says. And right here, look at this connection. Verse 30, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you see what he's saying? You boast in your imputed righteousness. You see, the doctrine of election brings you down. The doctrine of imputation takes you up. The doctrine of election says you're no better than anybody else, but the doctrine of the fact that you, you are righteous, perfectly righteous in him, in him, he's become our righteousness. When you realize that, Paul says you have the praise of God. Now, I, what does that mean? Daniel Barenboim, I've got a, I've got a CD of him and Yo-Yo Ma and somebody else, I remember, playing the Beethoven's Carl Fantasy. Uh, Barenboim actually not only plays the piano, he's the soloist, but he conducts the whole cor the chorus and the orchestra fr from the keyboard. And I, 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 I've, I've listened to this CD so many times. It is a knockout performance. But when, it done, when it's ended, about one quarter second after the last note, there is a thunderous applause like I hardly ever hear on even on a recording. It goes on and on and on. It takes your breath away. I actually listen to it very often. Sometimes I just put on the very end. I just, I go, I go for the last three notes because the, the huzzas, I mean, they are covering the musicians in glory. I can't imagine what it must have been like at that moment. That's what people live for. And Paul says, don't seek that. And yet, seek it from God. And Paul's no stoic. Paul's not saying, oh, no, you don't need anybody to adore you or delight in you. You don't need anybody to tell you how wonderful you are. You don't need anyone to heap honor and glory on you. And yet the doctrine of imputed righteousness is that all the things that Jesus Christ deserves, we get. And in him, God sees a perfect beauty. Now, we, we can hardly imagine what it's going to be like. The Bible says, tells us it's going to happen. We stand before him and he's going to say, well done good and faithful servant. And that is going to purify us. The joy that that will inflict on us will destroy every last ounce of sin in us. And we will, be, we will become our glorious future selves. And we don't know what that's like, but I can tell you this. Right now, 1 John 3 says, we don't know what it's going to be like to see him face to face, but even to hope for it purifies us as he is pure. Do you know what it's like to go around with that kind of humility, because you're no better than anybody else to go to the sovereign election, and yet that kind of authority, that kind of roaring affirmation, roaring affirmation from God, it's got to be something like that. I turn that on. I listen to that applause. It just doesn't go away. It doesn't, you know, second after second, you know how applause always starts to go down. It just doesn't. It just it's roaring. Huzzah. 
And I just imagine what it must be like to have been the person who performed that. But you see, in Jesus Christ, that's us. And that's the angels, and that's God. And it's we don't have it yet. But just the hope of it purifies us as, this is, as he is pure. You need to walk around with that kind of inner applause in your own heart. And then, what will you be like? Let me just read you the last part and show you the three things Paul says you'll be able to do. He says... Therefore, he says, it was that, that's, so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. Isn't that interesting? And so it was with me. He, he just said, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then he says, so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, with wise and persuasive words. I was with you with, in weakness and fear and trembling, and I preached only Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this, I'm just, I'm concluding here. Number one, to always preach Jesus and him crucified, to preach Christ from every text. You know, our, our brother Brian Chappell has shown us how to do that before him. Our father, uh, Ed Clowney, showed us how to do that. I don't have to tell you anything about that, but here's what I do remember. Years ago, before I really understood, I'd read those books, but I hadn't really understood it. My wife, Kathy, once said, you know, you, you're, you're a good teacher, but, but you, you know, it's like a lecture, and people are taking notes, uh, you know, how to, why we should believe in the authority of the Bible and how you should raise your children for Christ, and we're taking notes. But she says, you know, every five or six sermons, you actually get to Jesus at the end. And he says, she says, and then instead of a lecture, it seems to become a sermon. And everybody puts their pencils down, and they don't take notes anymore. They just start worshiping. I remember when she said that, I said, why should it be every five or six sermons? (laughs) For Paul, it was every sermon. But how did he do it? Let me just notice. Because he's a man who deliberately says, so it was with me. I have had this inferiority feeling taken away and the superiority feeling taken away. And as a result now, when he says, I came with, with, with weakness and fear and much trembling, not with eloquent words, uh, not with uh, high words, not with persuasive words, I believe what he's saying is this. He's not saying I don't use arguments. He's not saying I don't think about how to get a point across. He's, he can't be saying those things as you see in the book of Acts. He does that. He quotes other, he, he quotes pagan authors. He changes up his approach in every, with every audience. He certainly tries to persuade. That's not what he's talking about. I believe he's talking about something that is relatively rare with preachers today. Listen, everybody. He's talking about a, an uncontrived, disarming transparency. It's not something you can fake. It means, uh, you know, some of us are so concerned about how we look. Some of us are actually pompous and actually filled with self-importance. A lot of us are really nervous. I mean, you you know, sometimes the subtext of the sermon, regardless of what the preacher is saying, the subtext of the sermon goes like this. Don't you like me? Don't you think I'm pretty good? Don't you want to come back? Don't you want to give your money? Don't you want to bring your friends? That's the subtext. And in other people, the subtext is this. Isn't it great that we few, we happy few, have the true doctrine? And I'm going to use all the terms, and I'm going to use the, uh, I'm going to make the reference that show 
that we are the great people, we are those great kinds of people, unlike most other people who believe all the right things. There's a pomposity with some of us. There's a nervousness with some of us. Paul's heart was like a clear glass, and you could look right to the bottom. Uh, I believe believe a non-deliberate transparency means that the doctrine of imputation that raises you up, the doctrine of election that brings you down, means there's no facades anymore. There's no self-consciousness anymore. You're just not worried about how you look. And the pride is gone. And when people just look into your heart and they can see that your heart has been mended by the very thing you're talking about, and they can see it. And when you're talking to them about love, they can see the love. And when you're talking to them about patience, they can actually see the patience. And when they're talking about sadness, they can see the sadness mended by the gospel. They can just see it. Not that you're talking about yourself. In fact, you really shouldn't. You shouldn't be telling stories about yourself all the time. You know, you shouldn't be talking about yourself. You just show, yourself should just show the beauty of the gospel. You know, David, they say McShane, I think I remember this, when McShane died, uh, they found a note from a, a listener who had been converted the last time he preached, and the note said something like this. He said, uh, Mr. McShane, I uh, came to Christ when I heard you preach last. You were preaching about the glory of God resting on Christ. But as you preached, he said, it wasn't so much what brought me to Christ, wasn't so much what you said, but what you were. I saw the glory of Christ resting on you. You know, in the end, even though you might think I'm, it's a funny, this is a funny uh, concluding illustration to come from me, but I've always been moved by a story of what it was like to have Billy Graham come to the University of Cambridge in 1955 and preach the gospel at Great St. Mary's, right in the center of Cambridge. What happened before Billy Graham got there, there was a hue and cry in the Times of London. People are very upset about this fundamentalist minister from the backwoods of the South of America coming and talking to our best and brightest about being born again and about the cross and about the blood of Jesus. And it was, it really did upset Billy Graham, evidently, and kind of helped him probably lose focus. He was somewhat unnerved by it. And the first three nights, he was supposed to preach, preach every night. The first three nights, he just struggled. And he struggled with all these quotes from Kierkegaard and things like that he was trying to work with and trying to certainly not look like a rube, not look like some kind of backwoods guy. You know, I'm talking to the best and brightest in, in Britain. And then he, he knew he was struggling and he really wasn't doing very well. And so, the, you know, before the final night, he got down on his knees, he prayed, and he came up with a, with a decision. I'm just going to preach the blood of Jesus. Dick Lucas says this. He says, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel, sitting on the floor, with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg, with a chaplain of a college who was a future bishop on the other. Both of these were nice men, but completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And that night, dear Billy Graham got up and starting with Genesis, went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single blood sacrifice there was. The blood was just flowing all over the chancel, everywhere. For three quarters of an hour, the blood just flowing over everybody. And both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. 
It was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women, by the way, out of a student body of about 10,000 undergraduates at the time, 400 young men and women stayed and committed their life to Christ. And Dick says he remembers meeting a young curate, a Cambridge grad at Birmingham Cathedral over a cup and said, where, where did Christian things begin for you? Oh, he said, Cambridge, 1955. When? Billy Graham. It was the last night. Well, how did it happen, Dick said. Well, the man said, all I can remember is that when I walked out of Great St. Mary's for the first time in my life, I thought, Christ really died for me. For me. And uh, Dick says, it was unbelievable to the dons, the, the professors, that a man like that preaching a sermon like that could have had totally changed the life of a young man like that. But so it did. And so it will. Not persuasive words, not not trying to impress Disarming, clear-hearted transparency, Christ crucified, the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And these things come. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that we are at a place where we uh, have these same challenges that the Corinthian church had. Certainly, we also live in a pagan age. We also live in an age in which Christianity is largely despised. We too, like the Corinthian church, are plagued by not only our divisions, but by a lack of evangelistic and apologetic uh, effectiveness. And we believe these doctrines. Lord, as Reformed Christians, we believe these doctrines. And yet they don't affect us as they should. Would you change that? It would be our joy and it would be your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.